Let's stand to our feet as we prepare to read the text this morning. Our text is coming from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. When you're there, say, I'm there. If you're looking, say, still looking. Give you a second. All right, it says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Let's read it together. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to his riches and glory, he may grant to us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Let's go to the Father together. Father, we thank you so much just for one more time to be together. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, the privilege to sit amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this time uh, that we've entered into this preaching moment, this moment where we all hear from you and hear what you're saying to us. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, not just hear, Lord God, e uh, ears to hear, but to also be doers of your word, Father. I pray personally that you let me decrease, that you might increase. Hide me behind the cross, Lord, and, and I pray that you would speak through your people with clarity and uh, that we would apply uh, what it is your spirit is saying to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We know some prayers, don't we? Prayers that have been ingrained in our hearts and etched with a pen by the rhythm of rep repetition. Maybe your childhood prayer was this one. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. Maybe your childhood prayer was the Lord's prayer. And if you were like me, you didn't learn it in NIV, NASB, or ESV. You learned it in the King James Version, right? <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, and so on and so forth. You know it. I, I just wanted to see if you got it. Or maybe your prayer is the one written by Reinhold Niebuhr, which, which simply says, God, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change things that I do and the wisdom to know the difference. We all have our prayers, do we not? We have prayers that we say in times of trouble. We have prayers that we just uttered and learned as a kid because it was just what you did. We, we have prayers that we pray in moments of sorrow and moments of joy. But I want to add one more prayer to your treasure box, your toolbox of prayers. And it is this prayer here that Paul prays to the church at Ephesus. You know Ephesus. Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's the Chicago of the Roman Empire. It's, it's third to Alexander. You know the great city that's set on the Mediterranean, North Africa. It's, it's third to Rome, the largest capital, the capital of, of the Roman Empire. It's, it's large and it's the largest city in Asia and it's the providential capital, a provincial capital in Asia Minor. Known for its very beautiful temple that was dedicated to Artemis. Known for its bustling economy 
economy because it was a port city, but it's also known for its high number of Gentiles. And Paul is writing to this church of Ephesus. You know, Paul planted this church in Ephesus. If you read back in Acts chapter 19, you see the story unfold of Paul going to Ephesus and he's preaching the gospel. And the gospel, believe it or not, actually took some feet and started to change some things. You, you do know that when you preach the gospel faithfully and when the gospel is applied to your heart, you don't need no words. You don't need no fancy stuff to say. The gospel has the power to stand up on its own two feet. And as you see in Acts chapter 19, Paul begins to preach the gospel to the, to, to F, to the Ephesians and people get saved. What a shocker. And so as he's preaching and, and people begin to get saved, his preaching actually begins to affect a part of the local economy. If you read Acts chapter 19, you see a man by the name of Demetrius who was a silversmith. Demetrius spent time fashioning idols that would be sold to people as they went into the temple Artemis to pray. People began to get saved so quickly and so fast that Demetrius began to experience a difference in his revenue. Let me just put a little parenthetical marker here, and I want you to get this here, that when the gospel is preached, understand that the gospel is not just some cute, fluffy thing, but it's very violent. The gospel, when it's preached, it's going to pull some things asunder. It's going to cause some separation to take place in relationships. It's going to cause for some things to be upset in your life because the gospel didn't come to just further the status quo, but the gospel actually came to change. And the text tells us in Acts chapter 17 that Demetrius got so upset that he went to tell on Paul and it actually started a riot. Understand that when the gospel is preached, people are going to get mad at you. People ain't going to like you telling them that they're sinners and that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And so we know in the story of Acts chapter 19 that the, uh, the apostle is preaching the gospel and the gospel is changing people. We know a few chapters later, Paul ends up getting locked up in prison, and this is actually where he writes this. He's writing this to some Jewish people who would have known something about God, but didn't really know Jesus, but heard about him through the preaching of the Old Testament. He's writing also to Gentile people who would have been sympathizers to the Jews, who kind of would have been the one foot in, one foot out of the church. Then he's also talking about some straight up Gentiles. I'm talking about the roughneck people, the people who kind of didn't know a thing about Jesus Christ and just kind of lived however they lived. And now Paul is writing to them about Christ and how he wants them to grow. Here's the main point, and there are, three, there are four points in this, but this is the point by which all of them hang, and it is this, that spiritual growth requires soul strengthening from the Spirit. Therefore, it's important that we ask for it. This text here in chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, finds itself in a really interesting and strategic place in the book of Ephesians. In the beginning of Ephesians, in the first one and a half chapter, two and a half chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out indicatives. In other words, he describes the people of how they were, what has happened to them, and therefore what has happened as a result of what has happened to them. In other words, he's saying to them, you Jews and Gentiles, no matter what side of the fence you sat on, all of you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. He said, there was nothing that you brought to the table. Wasn't your good looks. Wasn't your money. It wasn't your education. It wasn't, your, 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 it wasn't anything that you had to bring you to the table. But you were dead in your trespasses, both Jew and Gentile. He says, but, but God decided to make you alive in Christ Jesus. Is there anybody here that's glad about the fact that God decided to make you alive in Christ Jesus, that he just didn't leave you hanging there suffering, but he made you alive? 
have in Christ Jesus. He says, now these Gentiles who were once distant from God, they had no stake in the inheritance. They, they weren't even covenant people. They were far from God. Now God, through the power of Jesus Christ, has brought these Gentiles and these Jews together, thus making a new man. So he says, as a result of the things that have happened in your life, from, from, from you getting saved and now you are saved, there are some indicatives that describe you as a people. But in chapter 4 and 5, he's going to lay out some imperatives. Understand this, that, that although you are saved by God and his power and not by your doing, there, there are some things that after you get saved, God actually expects you to do. And Paul is about to lay out this. And, but I like the fact that in the midst of this, he begins to make a prayer for strength. Why is he praying for strength? Because this move towards maturity in God and in Christ, this move is not an easy move. I mean, some of us who have been walking with Jesus for a minute know how sad and hard it can be to try to be holy in your own power. Some of y'all are tired of praying now because you prayed and you feel like you can't pray no more. You've tried to say no to things and it feels like you can't say no no more. But Paul, who's getting ready to lay out these things that we do as a result of the salvation that we got, he begins to pray for their strength. And I, I, I want to say that our first point that we need to get here is prayer is essential to your maturity. How I get that there. He says, he says, for this reason, in light of the things that I've already said to you, in light of the indicatives that I've outlined in the first two and a half chapters of this letter, because of these things, I bow my knee before the Father. Now, what's really interesting here is now Paul is talking about a way that is not the way that Jewish people would normally pray. A Jewish person, when they pray, would actually stand up and pray with their hands open to God. But Paul is saying, I bow my knee to the Father. He's talking about the Father that he actually has intimate relationship with, not just I bow my knee to God, but I bow my knee to the one who is my daddy in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I bow my knee. Now, he's not at all saying that, listen, in order for you to get to God, you can only pray on your knee, but really, the Holy Spirit is addressing a posture of the heart. Understand this, that just because you're saved does not mean that you just walk all up any kind of way in the face of God, because God is opposed to the proud. And God does not love it when we acting all arrogant and like he owe us something, like I'm just going to come to you any old kind of way. There are two essentials that he points out with this prayer. That, that is the first thing, recognize who God is. I hear Jesus saying, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says, pray in this way. Father, you're in heaven, you're my daddy, but hallowed be your name. Something about God loves when his people respect him for who he is. So he says, he says, I bow my knee before my father. Then he says, from whom every family in heaven is named. What's interesting about this name is not necessarily, he's not saying Watson, your name is now Watson because it's going to be a part of your sanctification and people are going to make fun of your name and ask where Sherlock is your whole life. But whenever God is talking about name, it's specifically dealing with the fact that God has an idea, not just an idea, he has an intimate knowledge about the you that you don't see. That God is giving you a name that, that, that describes all that you are, which is pointing to one true thing right here. When he says that God, from him, every person, every people group is named, he's simply trying to talk about the place of God. He's saying that every person that exists, you, me, our origin is found in him. Don't you think for a second that you exist by your own power, that you exist, that you just all of a sudden made yourself be born. Every person that exists 
comes from God. That's the prince, that's the powers, that's the kings, that's the emperors, that's you, that's your mama, that's your boss, that's your co-workers, that's your rebellious kids. Every person finds their origin in God. And Paul is saying, when you pray, you need to recognize that. Why? Because when you don't understand that God sits sovereignly above all people, it will make you pray puny and weak, pathetic, no moving prayers. When you understand that God sits high and he looks low, as the old folk would say, then you will have the boldness and the confidence to lay out some requests before him. But when your God is as weak as you and he just sits in the corner and he's puny and he has no power, then you ain't going to call on him. He says, I bow my knee to the Father from whom every person is named. He recognizes him for who he is. But, but then he says here, he says, that according to your riches and glory that you may grant. <clears throat> riches and glory has to do with the fact that there are, there's a treasure trove of stuff that only God has access to. There is a storage room of, and, and, and don't feel me trying to go prosperity on you, but just hear what I'm saying. There is a storage room of things that you don't have access to that only God has access to, right? God the Father has access to it, God the Son has access to it, and God the Spirit, whom he's saying, I'm asking that you provide these things through the Spirit, there is a treasure trove of things that you need to ask God for. I, I, I think about my friend Ken. Had a friend named Ken Sr. Ken Sr. said to his son, son, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Ken begins to set out on this beautiful undertaking of teaching his son how to ask God for stuff. He says, son, God sits high, looks low, so don't you go up before him disrespecting him, but honor him for who he is, but, but lay your requests out to him. So for weeks, Ken Sr. worked with Ken Jr. on how to understand how to pray. One Sunday, Sunday night comes, and they began to have a big family dinner. You know those family dinners on Sunday where grandma come over and your cousins and aunties and them come over, and they lay out a beautiful spread of turkey and ham and chicken and, and, and mashed potatoes. And, and, and in case you just want to try some candied yams, some candied yams and some biscuits with gravy and some, some, some cherry cream pie. And grandmama is sitting there with the mac and cheese at hand, and they're sitting at the head of the table, and Ken Sr. says, son... I've been teaching you how to pray. Why don't you go us, take us to the Father? Ken Jr. says, Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for providing it. But I want a red bike with yellow writing on it. He says it one time and he says it again. Father, I want a red bike with a white writing on it. Not the blue one that sat in the window, but the one that actually was behind the counter. That one, Father. Ken Sr. looks at his son and says, son, why are you screaming at God? Ken Jr. says, he's a, Ken Sr. says, your father, God ain't deaf. He says, I know, Dad, God ain't deaf, but my grandmama is. <laughs> Here's the point of this. Many of us spend our time toiling and trying to find stuff from other places that only God can provide. Instead of him asking God to help him, he asks his grandma to help him. And we look for our friends to give us peace. We look for our friends to give us strength. We look for our friends to give us guidance. We look for other things to give us only what God has. I'm trying to tell you that when you come to God and you're asking him to help you with your maturity, to help you grow in Christ, you need to recognize that he has everything that you need. Which leads to the second point of, as we begin to delve through the things that Paul is praying for, Paul says, and then I think our second point is this, we need to pray for strength 
to live. Because the Spirit dispenses strength to live a Christ-centered life. How did I get that? It says, I pray that you be strengthened with power through the Spirit. In other words, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit, who is the one that, that injects you with this power that comes from God. That's actually the force of what he's saying. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would take you, give you the power that only he has access to, and that he would inject it in your inner man. Now, why would he begin to talk about this idea of the inner man? Because the inner man is the quintessential you that only you and God know about. The inner man is the part of you that controls every aspect of who you are. It controls your, your desires. It controls your emotions. It controls your feelings. It controls what you will do and what you will not do. And guess what? That inner man, according to the scriptures, was ruled by sin. Prior to Christ, sin told you how to live. Ain't nobody have to sit down and send you to sin class and tell you this is how you ought to lie. When mama say, where them cookies at? You just said, I don't know. Sin so ruled you before you were a Christian that, that it was just your natural reaction to go off on somebody. It was your natural reaction to look three times when someone who looked appealing walked past you. It was your natural reaction to just dishonor God because sin ruled your inner man. But based on Romans chapter 6, the moment we placed our faith in Christ, the scripture says that we died with him. And the sinful part of us, the part that controlled our inner man, lost his power over us. Now the inner man that exists within all of us now has to learn how to live in a new way. It's like if you took me, a little south side of Chicago boy, and said, you won't be an American anymore, go to Italy, and now learn Italy. Forsake all that you know and live according to Italy. Our spirit man now has to learn how to walk in the things of God. But guess what? Our spirit man is too weak because all we know is sin. All we know how to do is what we've known how to do. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray for your strength. Well, why do we need to pray for our strength? Because we as a people are preoccupied with the outer man. We'll spend more time than we need to do in the gym trying to swole up ourselves. And I'm not saying these are bad things, but we spend hours in the gym lifting weights so that we can Instagram our biceps, the outer man. We spend a lot of money on making sure that we adorn what we look like out here, but very little time praying about what we look like in here. And then we wonder why when we're faced with sin, we seem like we can't say no. The inner man, the inner man that exists in every believer is, is weak and it needs the strength of God. Some people are discouraged today because your inner man got more strength than you. Some people are giving up and saying, I don't know if I want to do this no more because I can't fight this no more. But Paul says, yeah, you're right. You're too weak to fight it on your own anyway. So I'm going to pray for strength from God to help your inner man be strong. But then he goes on to say, I pray for the strength of your inner man so that Christ may dwell in you through faith. Now it's interesting here because we come to a theological dilemma because at first glance, it would look like Paul is saying, the spirit needs to do his work in you so that eventually one day Jesus is gonna dwell. That's not at all what he's saying because if you read chapter eight of Romans verse nine, it will say, however, you are not in the spirit, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Paul is saying he sees in his mind that the idea of the Holy Spirit doing his work and the idea of Christ dwelling is something that happens simultaneously. Now, how, how did I get that? Let's go deeper into the verb here. He says that Christ may dwell. 
This dwelling that he's talking about is not an initial dwelling. There is nothing in that verb that says Christ is not dwelling now. He's going to knock on the door and walk up in that mug. The idea of dwell here is a perpetual and a continual dwelling, which this is what Paul's saying. If you add it all together and put it in one bag, it'll say this, that the more the Holy Ghost works in you, because the job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, right? The more the Holy Spirit works in you to say no to sin, the more Jesus gets bigger in your life. I remember when I bought my home, as my wife and I were looking at our home, and I'm not going to tell you how much I spent, because it may make you jealous, and your inner man might get a little bit of strength up in here. But we walked up in that house, and we walked in, and we saw the carpet upstairs. It had shag carpet. Now, those of you millennials, you have no clue what that is. But your mama and them, your grandmama and them, for sure, know exactly what shag carpet is. It's the carpet that was so long and thick that you can walk, and it'll scrape the toe jam from your feet because the, the fibers were able to just ride through your toes. The shag carpet had been in the house for so long that it matted down and it was no longer shag. It was about as flat as this. When we moved into the house, there were cracks on the walls that didn't even look appealing, and we wanted the walls to look a certain way, and so we had to spackle them bad boys and throw the paint up on them to make them look good. Here's what I'm trying to say. The moment you got saved and the Holy Spirit entered into you and Christ therefore dwelled in your heart, Christ's job now is to make your house, your heart, a little more appealing to him. So the more that the Holy Ghost will snatch up the crap off the floor of your heart, the more that Jesus can lay out the Persian rug that adores his beauty. The the more that the Holy Spirit can unveil the crap on your walls, the more Jesus Christ can fix it up and clean it. In other words, the more the Holy Ghost teaches you to say no to sin, the more Jesus becomes the center. It, It becomes bigger than a song that we sing when we bopping in a car, but it becomes a reality of Jesus being the center. He says, he says I, I, I want you to be strengthened in your inner man so that Christ can continue to dwell and, and your view and your picture of him can grow because you need the help of Jesus to live a Christ-centered life. You can do all the philanthropic kind stuff you want. You can give all your money away to the homeless people. You can feed folk who ain't got no food. You can clothe people that ain't got no clothes. But listen, if the ghosts don't do some work in your heart, you will never, ever look like Jesus but so, he, so that he doesn't want this to look like some sort of a contractual agreement that a construction worker would sign when he works on your stuff. He didn't want it to seem impersonal. So Paul begins to introduce something else, and that's the love of Christ. Now, what's really interesting about the love of Christ is we as Christians believe in it theologically and biblically. After all, there's a verse that many of us quote. If you drive down south, you'll see it on every billboard. It is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, yes, we got a category to understand this love of God. But the reality is, and and, and maybe it's just me, many of us live our lives like he really don't love us. Many of us live our lives thinking, yeah, he loves us, but he kind of just puts up with me and he doesn't necessarily really like me. How how do I know that? Because when we fall into sin and our first reaction isn't to go to him and ask for forgiveness, it's to back away and go deeper into sin. That's that's the idea that says we don't necessarily believe in his love. But Paul says, I I, I don't want you to, to, to think that this is just an impersonal work that's going on here. I want you to know about the love of Christ, which is the third thing that we should pray, and Paul prays here, that you would get the strength 
to grapple with the love that Christ has for you. How did I get it? Verse 17b says this, that you being rooted, he says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Look this way. Rooted and grounded, he uses an architectural term and an agricultural term. Agricultural being the first one and architectural being the second one. When he talks about rooting, it's the idea of a farmer getting down on his hands and knees and, and hewing a hole deep enough to plant a seed. He plants the seed there so that the soil can nourish what grows there. He plants the seed deep in the soil so that the roots can spread so that when the high wind comes, it don't get knocked over. He talks about next, he says, you are grounded or established. When you build your house, you don't build it on dirt. You lay a foundation so that when the ground shifts, your stuff don't fall on you at night. Paul's saying, I want you to understand where you stand. You stand rooted in the love of God. You stand grounded on the love of God. Now, the beauty of the force of these verbs is that these are perfect verbs. What do I mean by that? Paul is placing emphasis on the current state of affairs because of something that happened in the past. What am I saying here? Paul saying that you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ because of what Christ did on the cross. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's an example of his love. Let, let, me, let me bring it down your street some. While you were bowing to everything that was not Jesus, Christ thought of you hanging on the cross. While you were sleeping with who you slept with, Christ thought of you as he hung on the cross. While your life said, forget you, God, Christ thought of you while, you hung, while he hung on the cross. Now listen, none of us would even think that. Let, let somebody diss us one time and our love for them has died. That's how 50% of our marriages can end a divorce. Let someone say, I love you, but then you steal their money or their car and watch that love go away. But he says, this love here, you are rooted and grounded in love. What, what is he saying here? That when difficulty comes in your life, that love ain't going to change. When trials come, that love ain't going to change. When Paul begins to outline the things that you need to do and you fail, that love ain't going to change. He understands that all of us ain't always going to love our lives like Christ loved the church, even though he says it. He understands that all of us ain't going to submit to our husbands like Christ said do. We're going to fail at it sometimes. He, he said that we're going to fail probably sometimes at living worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But, but Paul says, I want you to know where you stand. Amen. You stand in the love of God. A love that shows itself in the fact that he's patient with you even now. Think about the sins that you've committed after Christ and think about the patience that Jesus shows you. I'm talking about the patience that you wouldn't even extend yourself, but, but God has extended patience to you because of his love and his commitment to you. He says, I want you to know where you stand. He says, so that you can have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of God. He says, I'm going to now try to quantify something that is not able to be quantified. He says, the love of God is so big, I want you to comprehend something that your mind can't even wrap around. I, I want you to know how high it goes. It, it's able to lift all believers before God in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I, I want you to know how wide it is because it's able to take all of us 
and hold us together in his love. I, I, I want you to know how deep that love goes. It's a love that's able to reach to your depths to reach into the smelly, miry pit of clay to grab dirty sinners up and cleanse them. He says, I want you to be strengthened by the Lord to understand the love that God has for you. It's, it's so massive. It's, it's so great. It's so, it's so big. And guess what? Through the power of the Holy Ghost, you can grasp it just a little. He says, I, I, I want you to be strengthened to, to know these things. Then he says, so that you can know, verse 19, this idea of know is not like a I just gained this intellectual knowledge about his love, but, but it's really so that you can know through experience. See, it's not enough for me to say that a Philly cheesesteak is good if I ain't never had one. Amen. But the moment I have one, it gives me the credibility to be able to say the cheesesteak is good. You can't know that the love of God is good unless you've experienced it. And Paul says, I want you to know the love of yeah, God yeah. via experience yeah. so that you can comprehend its vastness for you. Paul says, I want you to know it, and you can only know it through strength. Why? Because we forget. There's somebody right now, and your head is hanging low because you forgot that God loves you. There's some people right now that you're feeling torn up on the inside because you forgot that God loves you. There's some people's prayer lives that are dormant because you forgot that God loves you. Paul says, I want you to comprehend the vastness of it so that you can know it through experience. But then the fourth and final thing he says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which is our fourth point. This fourth thing we need to pray, or the third thing we need to pray for is this, that God will give us strength to continue. Why? Because the Spirit strengthens you so that you can look like the picture God has of you. Let's walk through this text here. He says, he says so that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. A literal translation is that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. In other words, he's, he's pointing to a direction. But this fullness of God is a, is a subjective genitive. In other words, it's, it's a fullness that you don't have. It's a fullness that you don't possess. It's a fullness. In a, when he's talking about fullness, he's talking about everything that is God. Holiness, power, strength, perfection, love mercy, grace, compassion, all of these things that make him, he says, it's God's and not yours. He says, I, I want the Lord to do these things in your life through the Spirit so that you can begin to move towards the fullness of God. In other words, he's marking this as the direction in which you're going. Paul's speaking about maturity. He's saying, I want the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. I want him to strengthen your inner man to say no to sin. I want him to strengthen you so you can grapple with this love that he has for you so that you can continue on in the faith and grow in your maturity. Listen, God cares about your maturity. Yes, he does. God wants you to, if five seconds was the amount of time it took you to cuss somebody out, five years from now he wants to see ten seconds. God is concerned about the growth of his body. He's concerned about the growth of his people, and God wants us to grow. But, but if you look there at that picture of where we got to go, it can discourage you. It can lead you to a place of hope when you say, man, that's who God is, and God who already sees me in Christ as holy and loved as I'm going to be, but, but practically he got to work my mess out, that can discourage you. But I love the fact that Paul picked up on that benediction. He said, he said now unto him, in other words, he directs the attention now from yourself 
to the one that he's talking about strengthening you. He, he says, now unto him who is able. This is the God who spoke life into existence by a very word. This is the God who said, let there be light, and, and light all of a sudden appeared. This is the God who has worked things in your life for you to come to know him in some mysterious way. This is the God who supplies all your needs according to his riches and glory. He, he says, I want you to know and look to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think, which means this, that, that the prayer that you think you can utter, God is able to answer the prayer behind the one you actually utter. He says, he says, more than what you can think in your mind to ask him, this God is able to do it. So when you're looking at the track that God has you to go on and you feel like you can't make it, point your eyes to him. He says, he says to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we can ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us. Many of us don't pray for that help. Many of us don't pray, period, because we doubt the power that's at work within us. Let me tell you, that, that power ain't some new agey, hocus-pocus, floating around in the air type of power, but, but the same power that's at work in you is the same power that raised the dead Jesus from the dead. The same power that's at work in you is the same power that caused Jesus to wrap a garment and roll a stone out the way. The same power that's in you is the same power that caused him to walk out and show himself to people. Here's what it is. God wants you to see that as you pray for strength in the spirit, in your inner man, to say no to sin. This, this, this means practically, if you know your sin and you're going to see it, begging God to help you not fall. Isn't that what Jesus said? Lead me not unto temptation, but deliver me from evil. That, that means when you know that you're going to see something in your face, it means say, God, keep me from falling. He says, be strengthened so that, so that the Spirit may dwell in you so that you can live a Christ-centered life. Be strengthened so that you can grapple with the, the massiveness of the love that God has for you. Be strengthened so that you can continue to grow in maturity. But to do it, you got to keep your eyes on the one who has the power to make it happen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for just who you are. It blows my mind when I think, Father, that you choose and you delight to deal with messes like us. I'll just keep it personal, messes like me. I thank you, Father, that, that, that you, for whatever reason, choose to show your glory in broken vessels. And so, Father, we ask for strength in our lives, Lord, as we seek to, to grow in you, as you seek to grow us, we, we ask that you would strengthen our inner men. Lord, there are people here who, who, whose inner men are, are weak. I know mine is. I know we all are. But I pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen us. Strengthen us to, to desire the things of you. Strengthen us to love your word. Strengthen us to say no to sin. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would help us to see your love for us. Help us to continue on in this maturation process. But Father, we're mindful of the fact that there are people that are with us who don't even know Jesus. That, that a, a lot of these things may even sound appealing for them, but, but they've never placed their faith in Christ. So we pray, Father, that if they are among us, that they would trust what your son has done on the cross for them. In Jesus' name.